Hey everybody, it's Austin. Just a heads up, the audio in this is, well, it's technically fine, uh, but only after a lot of hard work. The microphone that I was recording with, my voice in the interview, uh, didn't didn't work right, and, and so there was a, a problem with, with my side of the audio. The people who I was interviewing, their audio was fine, and so I had to go in and redub my voice over my questions. There are some, some moments where I couldn't do that and you can kind of hear me coming through their microphones as they're talking or, you know, some crosstalk or sometimes I, it was just, it was too much quick back and forth for me to get in there and really overdub in a way that didn't feel kind of terrible. So just a heads up for that. But, but other than that, I, I, you know, really, really great answers and it was a real joy to talk to, uh, to Susanna and, and to Frederick. So, so thanks to them again and, and enjoy the interview. Hey everybody, it's Austin here at Giant Bomb. Today I have the pleasure of speaking with Frederick Wester and Susanna Mezzagram, the CEO and the COO of Paradox Interactive, which is a studio and a publisher that I really like a bunch. Uh, they make a bunch of games like Crusader Kings and some other things that I like a lot. So I'm really thrilled to get a chance to sit down with both of you and talk about Paradox as both a publisher uh, and as a development studio too. And the history of Paradox and all of that. For people who aren't super familiar, can you give me a quick introduction to the studio and what you do and your history? Sure. I mean, we're uh, um, mainly a PC developer. We do a lot of strategy games. Um, our recent success, I guess, is uh, the management, um, or sorry, the city builder, uh, City Skylines. And also um, we published and helped distribute Obsidian's um, Pillars of Eternity. Um, so I think that sort of put us more in the spotlight um, for those who weren't that familiar with Paradox. But what we've done is since 2004, we've um, developed a lot of strategy games and published a lot of um, PC mainly games. Right. 2004 was kind of like the introduction for Paradox was the beginning of the company as an individual game company. I know there was a, a different entertainment company at some point. Yeah, we, we had another... Um company owning Paradox Interactive up okay. until 2004, and then we had the opportunity to basically take it over because uh, no one really wanted the company back then. We were like uh, nine, ten employees maybe, and wow. uh, it was not profitable. It was very like – the business was really tough back then. It's, it's really tough right now as well. But um, back then you had to like ship games in boxes and uh, there were long lead times, uh, you know. You took a lot, a lot of, of risk up front. A lot of risk and a lot of capital binding. As So our old – old owners that they didn't really want to develop the company further. So we have had the opportunity to take it over. Great. And 10 or 11 years later, uh, how many employees are at Paradox now? We're about 200. That's a pretty big jump. <laughs> so about 50% of those are um, working on our internal titles. That's Paradox Development Studios. That's correct. Yeah. So we have um, a studio in um, Stockholm and one in um, up north as well. And then we uh, also have uh, about half of the company running the publishing side and also all the corporate functions, which is a necessity when you are 200 people. And are also doing outside uh, publishing work. That's correct. correct. That's correct. Yeah. Uh, you know, given that growth, what is it that makes a paradox game a paradox game? I think first and foremost, we're striving for um, a lot of value for the gamers. So uh, we've talked a lot of, about replayability. Like w what is the main reason for someone to pick up the game and play it again mm -hmm. <laughs> and to have a totally different experience than they had the last time they played it. And uh, that is something we try to get into all of our games, no matter the genre or the developer or anything. So we have like five core pillars uh, that we're working from, of which replayability is the most important one. What are the other, uh, can I ask what the other four are? Well, are now you're trying, I should have said it, right? Carefully, uh, company secrets. No, they're, they're not. You should they're know actually, these by heart. I, I, sh I should know this because I worked a lot in acquisitions, uh, like looking at new titles, but you have like hardcore and challenging, for example, which is really important because... Um, it, it gives people an ability to what we call nerd out, like it really engage yourself in the game and, and really like delve through everything and, and really like play it for hundreds and hundreds of hours. I mean, the average play time among the Europa 4 uh, people, I think, is 150 hours. Right. And that says a lot. Like, so you buy a game for $40, so the cost per hour played is very low, right? right? So the value to the gamers. But I think another um, thing that uh, makes our game stand out as well is the ability for the gamer to actually go in and create content um, themselves. So especially for our strategy stuff, 
you've been able to mod our games since since day one. So we have a very, very active modding community. And that's something that we've tried to bring onto our third-party titles as well, so the titles that we publish. So you'll see a, a game like City Skylines, for instance, I think, right. did it have like 50,000 mods after a couple of months, something mm. like that. And that Some of the mod makers are even setting up Patreon accounts to support their mod making, which is a, a whole other conversation. A whole other conversation. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, that is something I've seen, uh, your support of the mod community, for sure. I was following a kind of sci-fi space mod for Crusader Kings 2 uh, by a developer, a mod named Gaul, I think. Uh, the name of the, the mod was Crisis of the Confederation, um, which was a kind of sci-fi thing with, like, some Dune and uh, some, some other kind of influences. And in that, the, the modder really needed there to be a certain sort of, of uh, inheritance, a certain sort of... You know uh, something with with the way the way women w- were inheriting in republics, um, and and there was something with the code where it was like, no, this isn't going to work, and a simple mod wasn't going to fix it. Uh, so he went to the forums and said, like, hey, I have to stop this mod because this is kind of core to the way I'm envisioning these sci-fi future races and future civilizations. Um, and and you know the, some of the people in the forums were like, hey, why why is that such a big deal? Like it's it's a small thing. Like don't worry about it. And he kind of put his foot down, and the developer, one of the original coders on CK2 who had handled this one aspect, came in eventually and said, like, don't worry about it. I'll take care of it. Like, I'll go into the deep code. Like, this is definitely an old – this reflects an old foundational thing that we set up back before we knew that this game was going to be the thing it is now. Uh, and I really, really love to see him get that response from the development community that they, that they took seriously – that a modder you know, had this concern about about the way a feature was coded without, you know, that it wasn't flexible enough for him. I mean, we have a lot of employees who are former modders of our games as well. Um, so there's there's a big understanding and also a big, um, I think, respect uh, right. for the modding community, and it's something that we want to see continue thriving. So. Yeah, we, we see that as a part of the value that our games are creating for people who play them. Like, if you take Crusader Kings 2, for example, mm-hmm. you have the Game of Thrones mod that was named by... I don't remember the media outlet, but they named it the best Game of Thrones game in the world, although it's not really a Game of Thrones game. <laughs> right, so, right. Uh, so it's absolutely adding value to the games uh, that we create. So we try to do the best we can, like, and also listen to what people are saying about our games. Like, mm-hmm. it, there is a YouTuber called Arumba. So he, he posted like 10 things you should change in your universe all this force. So the next day we had a stream just replying to the questions, saying like, this we can't change. This is not like right. possible because of reasons, but... So that, that was really appreciated as well. So we tried to be close to the community like for everything and be transparent as well. Is that something that's gotten harder to do as the company has grown? Uh, because I can see how you know five or six years ago when, when the company was a little more humble in size, uh, that, that would be easy to keep up with. But now as, the, as there are more fans asking more questions, has that, has that been tough to manage? I mean, I think what you do is you look at trends more now than individual requests. So in the past, maybe we would look at you know, some individual requests. And now it's like, okay, 10% of the people are, that are requesting something are requesting this particular thing. Mm-hmm. All right, that then probably we can deduct that that's something that we should focus on. Yeah. So I don't think it's necessarily been changed. And I also think it's been a really big part of Paradox's DNA to, uh, to be close to the community. So as we've grown, we've tried to keep that and, and we've tried to make sure that there's not a huge barrier between the people who are creating the games and the people who are actually playing the games. Yeah. yeah. And, and of course we have a bigger community and support team today. Uh, but if you take me personally, when, when I like six, seven years ago, uh, I got a lot of emails directly from fans. Nowadays I get no emails at all, which mm. is a very interesting change. And yeah, totally. I that think, might change after this interview. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. No, but previously, I, I reply to all emails. Even people are just rude or trolling or whatever. So I reply and I, I do my best just to, to give the best reply I can. But it's an interesting trend that as we grow as a company, I get less and less emails, uh, which is, I don't really know why, because my email address is basically my first name, last name, at paradoxpositive.com. Right. I'm guessing there's been a, kind of a big change in terms of the structure of the company, too. You know, whereas people used to maybe email you directly because it was clear that you were us and he's the head of the, the company. Now it's it's they're emailing the head of the the game that their their favorite game that Paradox puts out or the, the manager of this group of games or, or something like that. Um, I, I guess an extension of that is 
uh, how how has it felt that as the company's grown, um, you had to cede some power to other people, you know, and take on a more managerial role? I, I think it's really nice to see that uh, people are being transparent about like information, like all the information we can share, we mm-hmm. also will share with with uh, the public, and uh, people are not afraid to speak. Uh, directly to our fans, which is a big gift. I mean, sometimes mistakes are made, sure. right? But then you just have to tell people that, sorry, this was a mistake. So we'll have to communicate in a different way, or just like find a way to. Uh, but the the default is to let these developers and designers and artists and other people speak directly to the community. Yeah, ninety nine percent of the time is very rewarding, both for the people actually making the games and for the community. I mean, when we're at at different trade shows like Gamescom in Germany or at PAX in, in Seattle, we send developers who stand on the show floor and speak directly to people. So they, like last year, I think, another dev team came by our booth and asked, so what do you do at Paradox? And, and one of our guys said, I'm, I'm a programmer at Hearts of Iron. And they're like, wow, they let you speak directly to like <laughs> to consumers. And, and they're like, yeah, you don't do that? And they said, no, they just say, go back to your dungeon and program. <laughs> so it, it, it's a big, I think it's a big difference in, in company culture as well. It's something that we, work. we've worked really hard to keep. But, yeah. I mean, coming from a background where, you know, we were a small company when we set up and, and several of the key people are still at Paradox. So relinquishing that control, not being as hands-on, sometimes that's hard. Yeah. I mean, I think we've all struggled with, with just trying to let other people grow into more important roles in the company, not because we, you know, we're power-hungry or anything like that, but because we like to get our hands, you know, yeah, exactly. We like to be really hands-on, and, and although there are certain things that I won't miss, you know, being called out for getting fired because, you know, somebody's upset about a game that we've released, and, and clearly it's my fault that we released <laughs> it, and, and can we please fire this woman? Um, you know, there are other things with that closeness that um, that you miss, and that's why we still go to the trade shows and meet all the fans, and why we still have forum accounts where we go in and talk to people on the forum, and we're really active on Twitter as well. I mean, that's what makes our work fun as well, getting that direct interaction with, with the people who play our games. Yeah, definitely. Uh, you know, Frederick, sometime this year, I think you said uh, to another outlet that that you thought Paradox maybe needed to be less Call of Duty uh, and more more Goat Sim, more Goat Simulator. So, you know, hats off to uh, to the person who, who got that quote out of you. It's a great headline. It's a, it's a really great pull quote. Um, but, but I also think it's a fascinating quote. Because, you know, I think, and I'm not trying to make this equivocation myself, but I think from someone who, who's outside, they can look at your, your catalog and say, well, actually, like, you do make war games, like Call of Duty is a war game, you know, Hearts of Iron is a war game on, on the surface. Uh, or, 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 you know, you, you do make action games, or you publish action games, you publish the showdown effect. Uh, you, you publish, uh, there's another game coming out soon called Hollow Point, uh, and, and those are action games. So it's not like you're averse to action so, so what is it that, that you meant there? Can you, can you kind of elaborate a little bit on kind of what the core of the idea was you were trying to get at there? Because I, I think it's interesting. Yeah, I, I wasn't really speaking about genres or, or anything mm-hmm. like that. And I am absolutely a big supporter of Call of Duty. So it's not that either. It's more what I mean is that uh, we should dare to think more different, like be more different in, in how we perceive games and how we do game designs and like – come up with new crazy ideas because that's what developing the, uh, what's developing the whole industry. Mm-hmm. And, and um, Ghost Simulator maybe was a crazy example because I know it was buggy out of release, but it was actually adding something new. And people were like, wow, this is just crazy. And it scored like, what, 52 in Metacritic and it still sold over a million units right. because it was adding something that people hadn't seen before. So what I meant with like more Ghost Simulators and less Call of Duties is that instead of iterating on the same known formula, we should dare to think more different. And, and then people challenged me on Twitter and said, hey, Paradox, you're only making sequels. And I'm saying, yeah, sure. I mean, you're right. I mean, we should dare to be more like um, different as well. Right. So I think we, we face that challenge every day. Uh, in our Because we want to do, like, you want to go the safe route, right? You want to know that you make money. You want to make your Hearts of Iron 4 because it's a big brand for us and we have a lot of followers for that. But on the other hand, I want to do some crazy stuff as well. You know? so just how surprise. You, how do you push that, that idea of innovation when you, know, you, do, you do have goals to meet and those can be on your shoulder saying, well, you know, we, we could make a sequel? Mm. 
Yeah, it's, it's harder. The, the bigger you get, the higher goals you have for the company, the harder it gets to be innovative. Mm-hmm. Uh, and especially now when we have like a green light process that is taking place in three steps, and you have a lot of stakeholders that come in. And the risk is always that a lot of products with a lot of edge gets lost on the way there, yeah. right, on the way to release. So we're, we're working with this almost every day to make sure that we're not like uh, dropping the edgy part of our paradox. And there are a lot of different things that we do uh, to try to support that, but um, I think that giving people like um, a lot of responsibility and at the same time a lot of uh, freedom to act mm-hmm. to make people like feel uh, safe in what they do. So we, it's like we we trust you, like deliver a game and like just give it your best shot. Yeah. yeah. But I, I mean, I also think sometimes it doesn't have to be crazy necessarily to be innovative. Like the Crusader Kings two team came up with the. Um, What's that called? The, way of life. Yeah, the Way of Life expansion, oh, yeah. which was, you know, wait, where did this come from? This was something completely different that we didn't really expect from uh, Crusader Kings. Yeah. Or um, the development team decided that Europe Universal has covered a lot of really um, prominent men in history. Mm-hmm. And we wanted to, they wanted to lift out some of the females in, in history. So they created a free DLC for the... What's that day called when it's like the Women's Day? Women's yeah, day. exactly. Eighth of March. And and that was you know within the scope of a sequel, but there's still a lot of room for the dev teams to to kind of come up with new ideas. So it's not necessarily the sequels on their own right. that stifle creativity. It's how you approach them, I think. And, and if you take Crusader Kings too, it's a good example because when I spoke to Henrik, who's the lead designer on, and, and lead programmer on Crusader Kings too, he said like. If I had known from the beginning that this was an RPG and not a strategy game, we would probably have designed the game in a different way. So we were surprised ourselves that this was actually played as an RPG. So, But that's how we see it today. And obviously, it's more an RPG than a strategy game. Or maybe it's not. I don't know. Or it like, could be played in both of those ways. So yeah. Suzanne, you definitely had something to say. Yeah, no, I just wanted to say that that's one of the exciting things that we've noticed over the past years as well, is that once the game is actually released to the public... Mm-hmm. It kind of becomes, they kind of start dictating how the game is played. So with the Skylines, we had all these things that we knew were going to work with the game and that we were really proud of. And then all of a sudden, all these stories started to emerge about the game mm-hmm. and the cities that people created and the people who lived in the cities. I mean, we were laughing our asses off in the office reading some of these stories. And it's not, we didn't expect the story part of to become as big as it became right, for City know, Skylines. Yeah. Game, like, yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And that's we, that's the great thing about the games that we release is that they become a beast of its own once it's released mm-hmm. to the people who are playing it. It's super exciting. Like So if you take City Skylines, the uh, article, the City Skylines city with only one house. Right. If you, if you yeah. read that. And it's an excellent piece because he, he downloaded, I think, the unlimited money mod so he could build everything, like schools mm-hmm. and stadiums and whatnot. So... And just like waited for one time. People should Google that story. Yeah, it's, it's great. It's very sad. Very, very sad. It's, it's like happy in the beginning, and uh-huh. then it turns sadder and sadder. It's so it's great. really nice. Yeah. Yeah, there are tons of stories like those. You know, whether we're talking about City Skylines, or we're talking about Crusader Kings Two, or your Europa Universalis. Uh, you know, even even some of the games you've just published uh, have that sort of thing. And and another thing that I like a lot about the games that you've both developed and published is that is that it's hard to say this. Like there is. There's no default kind of view of history or view of, of the world in a paradox game. There's there is almost the admission uh, that that things always have to have a personal flair, or or there's a critical you have a critical eye towards something, right? Like uh, you know, in Crusader Kings two, the the way societies work shift depending on whether or not you're in in Western Europe or in Southeast Asia, uh, or in a game you published like sort of the stars. You know that takes a very specific look at uh, you know space sci-fi spaceships but like um but also it looks at the way that like different sorts of transportation can shape uh, a civilization you know a civilization that has instant faster than light travel is different than a civilization that that can only travel between certain nodes of stars um and i understand how that happens internally i understand how you know you have a lot of you have a lot of push on the paradox development studio side but how do you exert that same sort of push to, to find that certain thing that that is iter- that's more than iterative, rather. That, that's, that is that kind of goat sim, uh, unique spin. Nothing else has done this before. How do you do that as a publisher with developers that you're working with? We look at a lot of different things when we sign a new developer. And uh, 
what we're after here, like we talk a lot about emergent gameplay or emergent storytelling in the game. Like what is happening inside your head when you're playing the game. And, and that is something very specific for a developer to actually deliver, I think. I mean, they're not, not all developers want to deliver that kind of experience yeah. and not all developers can deliver that kind of experience. So we want to find developers who are both uh, willing to do a game like that and are excellent at delivering that. So, but we have like, I think 20 different criteria we're looking at. One of the things is like YouTube friendliness as well, because a good game could be a good story as well, at least in a paradox perspective. So if someone had told me five years ago that um, people were going to stream Europa Inversalis and a lot of people would watch it, Mm -hmm. I would probably be like, no way, it's not going to (laughs) happen because it's like... It's not visually appealing in that way, but it's all about the storytelling. It's more like hearing someone reading a story or something like that. So it's a totally different way of doing it. It's not like Call of Duty or if you take Dota, for example, it's action-packed. So you don't really need the story because you see everything going on 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 stage. It's like ice hockey or basketball. But we're more like the Tour de France. So not much is happening at the same time. Right. (laughs) (laughs) So it goes on for maybe 12 hours. So... And you don't have to watch all the time. You can jump in and out a bit, and you can just like watch whatever suits you at yeah. the time you want to do it. So yeah, it's you know whether whether Twitch or or YouTube, you know Let's Plays or after action reports or whatever, or even going back to modding. It seems like you have this very community focus, uh, this very user generated content focused stuff, right? And and I think that that is very successful right now for a lot of people. You go on Steam and you see that the the top 10 games, like a lot of them feel like they've been made to be YouTubed, if that makes any sense, right? Like that's, but they've been made such so that they would be a hit on YouTube or, you know, they, they have things where it's like, it's a deep modding community that, that has a lot of resources available to them. Uh, when I look at AAA developers or even, even AAA publishers and, and other uh, large sized companies in the space, it feels like they don't really, you know, I'm not, I don't picture them sitting around going, how do we get on this YouTube thing? Or maybe that's wrong. Maybe they don't, Maybe they are saying that, but it doesn't feel like they have the the ability to do that the way you do. Uh, do you think that being able to move in those spaces, uh, modding, Twitch, YouTube, streaming, stuff like that, has been part of your recent success? Yes, <laughs> I think that the reason the reason we were early with all of these things uh, is because we have the luxury of having such a proximity with our community, and that's something that that we've actually spent a lot of time um, doing. Um, so for us, it became also driven by the community having that the kind of importance. And I, I do think the big studios think about it as well. Mm-hmm. I just think the shift is a little bit harder for them because they have their set structures and there might be some confidentiality things and they might not, you know, like handing your game over to the community is letting go of the control completely. We're not really controlling the narrative anymore the community is or, or the gamers who are streaming it or, or, or recording it on YouTube and you know that's scary totally. and, and if you're a big company and you might have shareholders and, and things like that you have to think about more things than, than we do I mean if, if we notice that something you know someone might exploit a bug and start talking about that on YouTube for two hours whatever we can just read it, reach out to that person and go look we're trying to fix this whatever let's Let's work together on this, mm-hmm. uh, which something like that might right. be harder for if a bigger company. You, if you're a developer at Activision, you have to then go through all of the, every level of, of uh, person between you and the community. You have to talk to legal, you have to talk to of course. PR, you have to yeah. talk to a million, a million and, and let's face it, I mean, they're also scrutinized more, um, you know, in media and things like that, whereas... You know, we're bigger now, but we can, I mean, compared to some of the other bigger guys, we're, we're still fairly small, so we can get away with a little bit more lenience, yeah. I think. But I, I also think that mods are adding so much to the overall gaming experience, to people who use mods. And if you look at, you mentioned the top most played games on Steam, like a few of the most played games in the world right now started out as mods. You have Counter-Strike, for example, which was Half-Life, Half-Life 2 mod, if I remember correctly. Yeah. And uh, you have Dota, which is a Warcraft 3 mod, and League of Legends, which is a, obviously, uh, yeah. yeah. And, and a few other games as well. Daisy and Gary's mod, and like yeah. so many super popular games that started out as mods. And, and the truth is that even if we're 200 people at Paradox and we have a lot of super smart people employed, 
<clears throat> collectively, our four million registered mm. customers will be a lot smarter than we are. So mm. they can probably create a lot of good stuff if we just let let them in. We'll open the door and say, you know what? Welcome in. You know, try try to mod our games, and we'll help you as good as we can. Well, to wrap around back to that, you know, how how do you feel about modders being paid uh, for for things they create for for their work? Uh, you know, whether through Patreon or through some sort of marketplace, you know, obviously things may have gotten off to the wrong foot earlier this year with the whole Bethesda thing. But how do you feel about that all? Yeah, from that is obviously a challenge from a legal perspective, because where where <laughs> how should people make money from a game that is copyright and how do you protect your copyright so you're not just giving away uh, your, your property? Because after all, we're living off from selling something. But I think in, in the future, uh, we need to find ways for modders to be able to be paid if they choose uh, to do that. If they choose to sell their mods, we should give them the opportunity to do it, but not like force people. And I, I think it needs a curation process as well. So not everyone can publish everything. Right. That would be a total chaos, I think. But I, I think it's a great opportunity for people to actually make a living out of making mods. It definitely feels like one of these instances where copyright law hasn't yet caught up with uh, with the technology, you know? Right. Where you're right, I, I could see how maybe your copyright would be put at risk in that way, uh, you know? But at the same time, it, it's one of those things where I think about some of the mods I've used in your games or in, in something like Fallout, where my experience has changed dramatically, right? You know, I think about playing Fallout New Vegas or something for the first time um, and going to it now. And there are so many usability fixes and so many content patches and so many fan made things that are, that have contributed greatly to what I think of as that game that I, I think maybe copyright law should, it needs to be addressed in some way so that, so that there can be a place where both you can continue holding your copyright safely, that that can be protected while also modders can go off to be to, to, to make commercial work. You know, I also understand that there is a benefit to doing non-commercial work, of course, right? You know, the, the Game of Thrones uh, mod for for uh, for Crusader Kings doesn't exist, right? If if it's if it has to be commercial or something like that, right? The, the HBO and and George R R Martin would shut that down in a second. But but as it stands, as a non-commercial fan product uh, project that that gets to that gets to exist. So I I do get that that benefit, and I get how it's a you know a complicated issue. I, I think in general, though, I mean, we w- would like to explore how um, content creators can benefit more from their work. We um, we've um, done some uh, book publishings through our um, we've published books uh, on our brands, and we did uh, was it for Europa Universalis Four? We did the What If, yeah, um, yes. and so basically, um, we have a section on our forum that's called the After Action Reports, yeah. um, which is one of the most visited places on our forum, and people write these amazing stories. And then what we did was um, we, uh, we, I think we ran a competition. Now, I, I'm not yeah. completely 100% with the details, but we ran a competition. We selected a few people to be a part of that book, and, and, and they were reimbursed um, for their work. Oh, so and we had uh, Harry Turtledove, I think, write something for it as well, like an, a real mm-hmm. author. who could. And, and yeah. this is, ended up being one of the more popular books that we released on that brand, and, um, and that's a... That's a pretty clear-cut way of actually yeah. being able to benefit from from your work. So yeah. it's mm. definitely something we want to look into more. But we don't want to force people to charge for mods, for example. No. That is right. still very important. Mm. So people who want to do things for free should continue to do that. So, so another thing that you've done that you know I, I think some of your competitors uh, haven't. I'm thinking of like Matrix Games here. Um, is is really moved to Steam and, and really adopt Steam uh, in a big way. You know, I think about Matrix, and a couple of years ago, I was really big into the Distant Worlds franchise. Uh, and and whenever an expansion came out, I was like, why aren't these on Steam? Like, why do I have to go to their third party site uh, and and pay a ton of money? Whereas whereas Paradox games are always a fixture of Steam sales. You know, and and I would go there and and get the expansion that I'd missed, or or you know, or, or whatever. Uh, so so so, what pushed you to adopt Steam so strongly, or to to put so many of your of your titles there and 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 really lean into it? Well, we we have a history of. Um uh, only being supported like by our own finances, right? We we never had any any external money, so we have always been dependent on being paid on time, which was never the case when you worked with external distributors. So, <clears throat> for a few years, we worked with Atari in the U.S. It works worked really well, but when Atari started uh, going into limbo, we decided to change to another distributor, and they didn't pay us. Mm-hmm. 
And this was in 2009. And they owed us quite a lot of money. It was like six, $700,000, which back then to us was a lot of money. And uh, after that crisis, because we were very close to bankruptcy because we, they didn't pay us, uh, uh, we, we sued them in court here in America. So sometimes courts can be really useful. So we got our money. Uh, well, some of it. Anyway. At least some of it. And, and so we, we could survive that crisis. And after that, we decided to go all in on digital because we said, you know what? If we, do, if we make a majority of our money in digital, we're going to get paid faster. We're going to get paid by steam who are really well-funded and have a lot of cash. Uh, so the problems are going to be only, like the biggest challenge is going to be delivering a good game instead of like dealing with distributors who doesn't pay, coming over to America and visit Walmart in Bentonville, Arkansas. and you know, So we could just focus on the digital business and make a lot of, uh, most of our money there. Have you at this point basically moved out of the physical space completely? I think it's less than 3% at the moment. So it's mainly collector's editions with sub-license to a few markets like Germany and a few other markets where internet connection is not as good as, as most major cities in America or like in Scandinavia, it's really right. good as well. We've been getting uh, emails recently to, to our weekly podcast about internet speeds uh, across the world. We recently got uh, an email from someone up in Nunavut, which is the most northern province in Canada, talking about what, what terrible speeds that they that they pay a fortune for. Up there, but but at the same time, it's funny because you know it's a, it's a place that's filled with ice and snow, and I feel like a paradox grand strategy game is exactly the sort of thing I would want to be playing if I was like stuck indoors for the majority of the year and just had to dig deep into something. Um, but you know, speaking of the the online retail space, actually, uh, Frederick, you you back in two thousand six, I want to say, uh, founded a a online gaming site, an online gaming uh, retail space that is named Gamersgate, uh, no relation. No, very unfortunate name. Now, yeah. when you look back at it, it's, it's very unfortunate, yeah. I, I did in 2006. What was that process like? Because I think about companies like CD Projekt uh, and some other places, CD Projekt has GOG, um, that are both developer and publisher and, and also have a retail space online. Uh, were there difficulties in that? And, and what, if anything, did you, did you learn from all of it? We actually, we didn't have any, pla we called it Paradox On Demand to okay. begin with, actually, P.O.D. And um, our idea was just to get money faster. <laughs> so we were, like good I said, yeah, it was, but we were financially qu quite vulnerable uh, back in those days. It's 2006, it's nine years ago. And uh, so what we started, I mean, our way of thinking was really strange as well back in those days when you look back at it because we said you know what let's do something we did dlc before people even had heard the name dlc or even the three-letter acronym wasn't invented so we released what we call a download only expansion was the name for us and, and we said okay let's take our worst selling game in the strategy series so we have a rock bottom figure on what right. will sell from something like that so we released Victoria Revolutions in 2006, and it did really well. We were surprised. I think a lot of people who pirated the original Victoria because it was not available in stores actually bought the expansions. We were like, wow, this is really a good business. So, And then other people contacted us and said, you know what, you have a download portal. Can you sell our games as well? Because everyone wanted to make money in the digital space because they saw that they got, got paid really late. But then in uh, late 2008, we split the companies because we figured that if you're going to be good at publishing and developing games, you can't be a retailer at the same time. And now we're proven wrong by Steam, <laughs> but that was at least our uh, our take on the whole situation. So we, we said, okay, let's split up the companies and have separate management teams and separate. And today the ownership structure and everything is totally so different. different. Yeah. yeah. So what happened, because we started with that in 2006, was that um, our customers or our gamers, they got used to uh, having uh, content delivered digitally. So even though there were some you know, people who had opinions about Steam, um, just the actual fact of downloading games was not new to them. So we were able to make the transition uh, fairly quickly. And then you were talking about how do you keep the innovation in, in your game development. And this was a perfect way for us to do it because we could at lower cost than it would have been previously when we had to print stuff, try things out, like Victoria right. Revolutions. We did 
what did we do? The Hearts of Iron 2, Armageddon, Doomsday expansion yeah, yeah, yeah. pack, something yes, like that. You know, like we were able to experiment. <clears throat> yeah, it was called, way. the first one was called Doomsday. And the Doomsday was another, really, uh, speaking of how to work with the community. Because mm-hmm. the I saw that, okay, let, we, we said, let, let's do something, a standalone expansion pack for Hearts of Iron 2. That's a good idea. So, and uh, me and Joe and Anderson, who's still uh, our lead designer of the company, uh, we sat down and said, you know what? We don't really have time to design this game. So what do we do? So we asked the forum. We said, if we do a standalone expansion pack, what do you guys want to see in that? And uh, in 24 hours, we had 28 forum pages, I think, full <laughs> of ideas. And 75, 80% were really bad ideas, but the rest was really good. So we took, I think, the seven best ideas, and we said, you know what? You told us to do this, so now we're doing it. So in six months, we made a game. I think that's the quickest turnaround time ever in our mm. company. Right. And then we released Doomsday. And then we released Doomsday, Doomsday Armageddon. Armageddon update pack or something, like 4 dollars <laughs> You didn't have to print it. You didn't have to... Uh, exactly. Uh, yeah, Doomsday went to print as well, but more as a... Uh, but that was after we, found, we, we also saw that there was a lot of interest for it. Yeah. So it was a good way to kind of gauge... You know, before pre-orders were really a thing digitally, we were able to gauge what's the interest in this and will this sell and exactly. And you also have to remember that back in those days, everyone was talking about the death of the PC gaming uh, space. Uh, everyone was saying PC is, di- is is dead and it's going to die even more, like it's going to disappear. So we were kind of worried about that. Um, so we started looking at console alternatives and everything, but it's it was too expensive to make things for console. At least for us, it was so. Have you thought about going back to consoles in the time since? Well, we released Magicka 2 on, on the PlayStation, and it did okay. Uh, and and we're, I mean, we're always open to new platforms and new experiences with our games. I mean, if we could release your Open Versailles 4 on the PlayStation, I would happily do it. It's just that the UI is not really, <laughs> yes. it's not really perfect to sit on it like a distance and look at our UI because it's too, it's too uh, messy. Okay. <laughs> Things, did the things from the iOS and, and Android? Is that correct? Did it it did, yeah. It did. What was the experience like uh, getting something on to iOS devices, and uh, what was the what was it like dealing with the iOS marketplace? You know, in general, we've done a few games. We did Magic Wizards of the Square Tablet. We did Knights of Pen and Paper one and two, and uh, like you mentioned, Leviathan Warships as well. And it's a different beast, definitely. And for us, PC game like. PC is going is always the main platform. So what we need now, if we're going to do more mobile stuff, we need a leader internally who's a champion and who can lead all the mobile stuff for us. And we need an idea on what we want to deliver on mobile. And uh, I think the key for us would be to be basically delivering the hardcore gaming experiences we're doing for PC, but for a mobile space. And we haven't really gotten to how the formula is going to look yet, but okay. once we move in, and we're going to give this a shot, definitely, but... We just need a solid plan and an idea on how to go in there. Yeah, you know, I've definitely seen some other companies uh, try and struggle to get into the kind of mobile device space because it seems so popular right now. It was like that and Steam, which we talked about, and, and streaming and YouTube. Uh, and then, yeah, again, mobile. You know, those, those have been kind of like the, the hot things right now. I'm curious if, if there's anything else besides those that you have looked at and said like, oh, that's that thing is great. Whatever that thing is is great. I wish we could wrap our heads around it. It would be it would be rad if we could get into into that thing and and would make a really good great splash there. No, I think mobile is the thing that I'm I'm thinking about because there are so many devices out there and there are so many people. Like I'm a hardcore gamer myself and I don't really find the games I want to play on an iPad. But sometimes I just am too lazy to get my ass over to the <laughs> PC and play there. I just want to lie in the sofa or in the bed and play a game. Yeah. So I think there's a huge market for hardcore gamers like myself. So, But um, a lot of people are talking about VR. Uh, I'm not really uh, that excited yet because the install base is going to be really small for the first two, three years. And uh, we'll see how it, how it comes out. But... I'm not too uh, too excited. Have uh, either of you tried out any any VR experiences at all? A few of the modders have done some stuff for City Skylines, I think, oh. for the Oculus, which is yeah, you can. I think you can walk the cities and look around, but it, it's very low poly on right. that level, right. so it it's doesn't look that good. Yeah. So. Yeah. I think for us, it's um, we have this fairly straightforward saying internally is that if we want to do mobile, we want to figure out a way to do it the paradox way. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and and that's been the case with 
every new business model that we've tried out or every new platform that we've tried out, we need to do it uh, the paradox way in a way that makes sense for us rather than trying to copy someone else's formula. And if, if we make, for example, Crusader Kings for mobile, uh, maybe it's not the same game as on a PC. Maybe it's something else. Maybe it's not map-based. Maybe it's more like family dynasty building in, in a different way which is more suited to the mobile space. I would play that game. Right. You know, I'm, I'm curious too if, uh, you know, another one of these, these watchwords that comes up a lot is crowdfunding. Uh, and, and you haven't done any of that yourself as far as I know, but you did recently publish uh, Obsidian's Pillars of Eternity, which was a kickstarted game. Uh, so I'm curious, one, just what was the experience like working with, with Obsidian as a publisher there? And, and two, did the fact that that was a kickstarted game affect your duties at all as a, as a publisher? Well, I think one of the reasons Obsidian partnered with us was because they realized once the Kickstarter campaign had gotten so successful was that, wow, you know, this is quite a huge campaign and we need to deliver a lot of stuff to our backers. But what we really want to do is just make sure we create a really great game. Um, and so that's one of the reasons they started initiating talks with us. And so for us, I mean, I think maybe the difference, even though we went in with open eyes, was that um, there was a lot of goods, like physical goods that needed to be produced, um, that we needed to put processes into place for. But in terms of working with a large install base and having a huge backer pool and making sure that they knew what was happening all the time and, you know, Obsidian handled that communication really well, that's very similar to what we've already done are in during our entire existence and i think that's one of the reasons why obsidian picked us um as a partner um so i wouldn't say i mean what was the original question did it change a lot yeah, and did that did the fact that there was kickstarter involved or there was no no not really i mean and when we went into it like the rules were really clear as well it was really important for us that the obsidian backers knew who was doing what and under which uh premises we came in um to the the partnership and one, one thing that was really positive, I think, is that we already had 75,000 people who mm. signed up for the game sure. that were advocates for the game already before release. So PR-wise, it was a huge boost for us. Yeah. So there were so many people waiting for the game that it got, like, buzz of, it, of its own, sort of. Like, they... All the 75,000 people were really, really good for us as well. But don't get me wrong, I do think that it... It is a tall order for any developer to handle that kind of campaign yeah. with that many backers. Um, it's why Obsidian went outside to get support. Yeah, but I mean, they handled a lot of the communication as well. So there, there was a good partnership. But I think that um, for any other developer thinking about it, they need to understand the dynamics of mm -hmm. having that. But I mean, they've been around for quite a while. So that wasn't new, having a big a group of people that they needed to communicate with at all times. No, and working with Obsidian is great. I mean, uh, they're one of the best in the world in the RPG space, and that's the type of developers we want to work with as well. People are strong, independent, and really good at what they do. So <laughs> and to deliver, like, to work on, on long-term relationships. If you if you look at City Skylines, we started in 2000, the 2009, I think, with the first Citizen and Motion, Citizen Motion yeah. and then Citizen Motion 2. And the whole idea from the beginning, together with the Citizen Motion team at Colossal Order, was to sooner or later go into uh, city building. So that was the, like, that's why Citizen Motion 2 was a step away from Citizen Motion 1. So we t tried new systems, so we tried to be more city building-like. Mm -hmm. So <clears throat> it's, it's been developing over the past five, six years. One or two more questions and I'll let you go. Uh, one of the things we've been talking about a lot here in the States in the enthusiast uh, press for the last couple of weeks is is the ongoing relationship between SAG-AFTRA, uh, which is an acting guild that includes some voice actors, uh, and their relationship with game publishers. Uh, obviously, there isn't a lot of voice acting in, in Paradox's grand strategy games, uh, but, but it has also brought up a broader question about what conditions look like uh, for workers in game development and, and in general what the state of labor is in the industry. And a lot of the response has been developers saying, hey, you know, screw that, screw voice actors. We don't get royalties and we work crazy hours. We work really, really hard. Um, and I'm curious what you do as a developer and as a publisher to ensure that the workers at your studio and at the studios that you work with, that they're not working under, under terrible conditions. And, and, you know, also kind of what do you think generally about, about the state of labor in the industry? 
That's two different questions. The, fir the, the first question is what do we do uh, at Paradox being a Swedish company? Uh, and the other question is just in general for the industry. I think, um, you know, with, in Sweden, uh, there's a huge understanding that if employees um, thrive um, and feel like they have good working conditions, uh, they'll produce better results if you want to speak in, in those terms. Um, and I think there's also labor laws um, that we've all grown up with um, that, that we all adhere to. Um, so I think the terms uh, in Scandinavian companies or, or Swedish companies totally. speaking about what I know um, are fairly decent. Um, of course, you know, working with games, things change, um, production schedules slip, there might be some overtime or crunch at certain periods, um, but that is... I would say minimal compared to uh, the rest of the um, the rest of the the industry, and you know we have what six weeks of holidays each year, and you know like forty hour work weeks, and you know bank holidays, and Friday beers every Friday, and 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 that kind of stuff, and 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 you know we work, we make sure that everyone has a health allowance to go to the gym. So there are things that we do alongside that. Frederick goes and picks up his kids early on the certain afternoons. So you can That's lead good. by example um, as, a, as, as a manager as well. And sometimes the kids come to the office as well, yes. which is not being even a good parent or a good boss. Like <laughs> every, every now and then it happens as well, but they actually like coming to the office. That's my explanation. You know? In other words, you don't draw a, a sharp line and say like, you know, uh, work is the most important thing in your life. And you, you kind of show that uh, by, by living it yourself and, and kind of encourage people like, no, like you don't have to be here. Get out there. Go home. Yes. And work-life balance is something that's very, very important and high on people's priority lists uh, in Sweden. Uh, I think one of the challenges that I have sometimes with the industry as a whole is um, just the, the way uh, the employment um, forms that people have, that you might have worked somewhere for a really long time, but you can still be laid off quite quite easily. And, you know, there might not be, you might not have a, like a fixed employment where you get like health benefits and pension and things like that. Work. Yeah, exactly. And I don't know. I mean, put really simply, if you're always afraid that you're going to get fired, how can you possibly do your best work? How can you possibly challenge something if it needs to be challenged in a game, mm -hmm. if you think that that might make you uncomfortable in that team? And I don't think that fosters creativity necessarily. Yeah. Do you think that the, the studio culture that you have uh, has, has, one, you know, allows people to, to not feel like they themselves are being crunched into a hole, and two, that it's, it's allowed the studio to prosper and so you can, you can innovate instead of only iterating, you know, the way, the way we talked about? Mm. Yes, that's very eloquently put. Yeah. I would say that. <laughs> On the other hand, people are very uh, eager to produce good games, yeah. Paradox as well. And I see people, you know, I, I'm i not always the best role model. So I can go into the office. I live like five minutes walking distance from the office. So I can, I can go in on Saturdays and sit there and work for a few hours. And then I see other people there, which kind of freaks me out a bit. So I, I asked them, like, are you sure that you want to spend your Saturday here in the office and not, like, being outside or doing something else? <clears throat> and they're like, nah, I need some extra hours just because I lost some hours during the week. And, it, like, our developers and everyone at the companies, is my feeling, is they want to create really great experiences for people. And then you, as a manager and as a boss, you have the, like, you have to hold people back You have to be like sort of not a parent. That's the wrong way to put it. But sometimes you have to say, you know what, like take it easy. The right. most important thing is still that that you feel good uh, working here. Yeah. So. And sometimes that's hard because we're all really passionate about what we do. So sometimes I have to remind myself it's not cool to email an employee at eleven o'clock at night just because I'm up. And that means that the, yeah, that thought. means that that person thinks that they have to answer me at eleven. And and that's something that's changed as well as we've become more management. Mm -hmm. You know, like you get a different role in the company. You don't always realize that because I'm still the same person that I was when I started 11 years ago. So, um, and sure, I mean, not to make it sound like a, this rosy fairy tale, of course, you know, people are stressed out sometimes. And, you know, sometimes when you go at events and you work around the clock and that kind yeah. of stuff, but I think that's the game's just, calm, for example. yeah, I mean, I think that's part of, of the package in a way. And I'll, I'll have to admit that I send uh, emails to the management team at all times, uh, day and night, actually. Whenever it, I get it, an idea, I send a text message. I'm like, what do you think? And I s say to people, like, on the other hand, because that's 
kind of how I work. That's it. So I send things when I have an energy to do it. But don't reply if you feel that you don't want to. Like, I think it's different when you email the management team as well or when yeah, you email like someone else who thinks they need to. I was a bit... I got a bit annoyed when I went on holidays for two days and I said, only contact me if, you, if it's urgent. And I had 10 text messages and a voicemail. I was like... Was that all from me? or was that Well, people? some of them were from you. <laughs> <laughs> but in general, I would say, that, you know, fostering this kind of work-life balance, um, you need outside perspective as well. I mean, we work in a creative industry. Otherwise, you won't be able to, to do your right. best. That, again, goes back to this notion of, all you're doing all day is seeing the one thing yes. in front of you. Uh, all right, so last question, I'll let you go. Uh, um, you know, what was the last thing that you played or, or saw? You know, it doesn't have to be a game even. Uh, what was the last thing that, that you did that, that really inspired you, really got you fired up and, and gave you a bunch of new ideas? I'm actually, <laughs> speaking of mobile games, I'm playing this little game called Prison RPG mm-hmm. on, on my uh, Samsung tablet. And I, it's super simple. It's a small management game, but I found that like it inspired me. Like I, I got a lot of really cool ideas on what we could do much deeper, like deeper systems and more like intricate like gameplay. But still, I thought it was a really neat game. So that was like I played that like for the last five days. I love that. Like 20, 20 minutes ago, you were like, "I'm not much of a of a mobile game. <laughs> I don't do too much." But then. Turn around, like that's how it works. Right? Well, that's that's, makes, that's how it works. Exactly, mobile just kind of sucks you in, mm-hmm. and and you don't really want to admit it. But uh, here I am. And I, I play a lot of games with my kids, so we do like um, Super Mario Kart and and those kind of games. And they recently got um, uh, Super Mario Maker, yeah. and I just I. They sat down with that game. They're seven years old, and they just started building their levels. And I was so impressed. And I just think that, you know, we have so much work to do when it comes to... <laughs> we're never going to aspire to have, you know, those kind of games. It's just understanding what to do. The mechanics should be easier. Like, we have work to do on on, on making at least that first interaction easier. It could be super complex under the hood. Right. But like uh, you and Anderson says, you should need a PhD just to understand your first steps uh, in our games. Yes, so. Mario Maker is fantastic with that, right? Mm-hmm. The, the opening thing with Mario Maker is like you walk forward and it's like, oh, wait, this level isn't complete. Like, mm-hmm. there's pits you can't jump over here. Mm-hmm. Like, hey, you know how Mario works. Like, make this level completable. And that's brilliant. As just, And also there's a ton of depth in those systems, but that first step is like the best tutorial I've ever seen. You can get now. started yeah. straight away. And then there's like all these layers of complexity exactly. under the hood. Well, thanks so much for, for taking time out to talk to me. Uh, I hope you enjoy the rest of the day in New York. And, uh, Thank you so much. Day. This was a Thank lot of you. fun. Yeah. Thank you.